Okay, well, you can turn over to Matthew, or excuse me, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and while you're turning there, just to let you know, in February, we'll be bringing back our Wednesday night Bible study, midweek Bible study, and we're going to be focusing a little bit on evangelism, people reaching people. I think one thing that, um, as the people of God, a lot of times we forget that God left us here not just to come and sit in church every Sunday, um, or to gather even together on Wednesday nights but to get out there and get busy sharing the gospel. And so hopefully we'll be able to be sharing some uh, skills and some some techniques and some biblical mandates as far as evangelism goes. It's not going to be a scary class or anything like that, but hopefully it will give you some um, information that you can use. And so we'll be starting that on the first Wednesday in February. And also... uh, on Sundays, we'll be starting through the book of First Thessalonians. And so you can be reading First uh, Thessalonians in anticipation of our opening there in uh, the first Sunday in February. But this morning, as we turn our hearts to God's Word in Ephesians chapter 5, we're in this series called The Church Defined. And um, the first week, we looked at what is the church. Last week, we introduced basically today's message, (laughs) Uh, kind of served as a tee-up for this message, you might say, but it's really my conviction, I think, if the church loses its biblical sense of identity and purpose as outlined in the Word of God, if we lose that, then we've really lost any ability to have any kind of influence here in this world. And so if we don't get the church right, everything else we do here is going to be wrong. Would you agree to that? So we want to spend a couple weeks just spending time looking at the church, and this isn't a complete series. We'll probably revisit it in the summer because we're starting our other ones in in February, but it's important to remember that Jesus called us um, as he left us here. He referred to us as salt, right, and what? And light. Okay, both of those things have influence in our lives every single day. Uh. Even if you don't like salt, it's in stuff. And so it it has a purpose. Um, There's salt in your body. It it helps us. And so both are very influential things that we utilize every day. And so we're going to be looking at this text of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5 as Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. And remember, he's writing to a, a group of Christians. He's writing to believers in a church. And uh, we're, we're going to be turning there and reading that in a second. But as I introduce this, I, I just, this last week, I think it was last Sunday I was talking to somebody, and they brought up the idea of, um, you know, society is just growing worse and worse, and it seems like the church is growing more numb to it. And we started talking about our senses, and I said, it's funny you bring that up, because next week I'm using that. And, you know, a lot of times, if you ever think about the body, you think about how God created us, you think about the five senses that he gave us. It's amazing when you think about it, these senses actually adjust. I mean, the senses are there to receive stimuli, right, from outside of your body, whether it's through the eyes, the ears, taste, touch, and the hearing. And, and so when you think about it, those senses adjust when there's something harsh out there, don't they? Like, you know, if you're, if you're in a, uh, a room inside and you go outside and it's a bright sunny day like it is today, what do you do? You go, oh, what happens? But after a while, you don't walk around like that the rest of the day, right? You either put on some sunglasses or your eyes adjust, right? And when you go back in a darker room, what happens? Well, I can't see anything. 
But then, if you wait in that darker room long enough, what happens? Your eyes adjust. And pretty soon, you can see outlines of people. You may not be able to see everything, depending on how dark it is. Um, it's kind of scary when you're in a place that is utter dark. Uh, I remember going into a, a cave down in Southern California, and they turn off the lights. And you, you can't see the hand in front of your face. And it's only for a couple seconds, but it seems like it was hours. It's terrifying. I mean, you can't see anybody next to you. You just hear noises. And uh, so our senses adjust. Your ears even filter out certain sounds after a while. You know, you wives who have snoring husbands, you probably realize this. You know, after so many years of him snoring, you, you don't even hear it anymore. Or maybe you do. I don't know. But... Um, I, I noticed this when we went back to Pennsylvania. Growing up in Pennsylvania at the home there, we had about 60 acres behind our house. There was nothing. It was just just wilderness mountain, and we'd play there every day. And it was a very peaceful place to live. And once in a while, you'd hear a car go in front of the house down Fairview Drive. But behind the house, it was very quiet. And then the state of Pennsylvania decided to put a freeway through our property and took about 20 acres and built a freeway. <laughs> And I remember in high school when I was staying at the house hearing these cars. And I thought, wow, that's so irritating. But after a while, after a couple of years, I didn't even hear them anymore. But when I went back last, I think it was in November actually, I was standing in the driveway in the morning. And all of a sudden I thought, wow, I never knew these cars were so loud. You know, but after time, you, you, what? you just tune it out. Your ears filter out things like that. They adjust. And you... Your smell works the same way, does it not? Have you ever painted your own house, right? You start painting, and at first you open up the can, you're like, whoa, man, I get high on these fumes. And you start painting, and pretty soon you don't even notice it. And then your spouse or your children come home, and they walk in the house, and they go, whoa, what's that toxic smell? And you're like, what are you talking about? I've been painting here for, I don't smell anything. Why? Because your senses adjust. Um, Your sense of taste even adjusts. I remember the first time I had a cup of coffee, it was like, oh, this is toxic. It's bitter. Oh, who would drink this stuff? You know, and I still, frankly, don't like coffee. I drink about a cup or two a day. But other than that, I don't, I'm not a coffee connoisseur in any way. But, you know, after a while, you you just grow accustomed to it. And some people even crave it. Okay? Uh, That's just the way it is. And the same thing with our sense of touch. Right? You go out in the garden and you're, you're working. What happens? Your, your skin adjusts. Right, You get calluses because your skin's adjusting. Your senses adjust to things. Well, you know, this is an advantage to our physical bodies, is it not? I mean, I'm glad when I go out in the sunlight, my eyes you know, constrict and I'm not blinded by the sun. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that the sense of smell and hearing and everything adjusts. That's, that's a benefit to us. But unfortunately, our spiritual senses don't work that way. All right? After a while, you know, we, we grow callous to certain things. And, you know, think about it. When you first hear of a, of a terrible sin, what do you do? You recoil in disgust. Right? You step back and you go, wow, how could anybody ever do such a thing? But if you're exposed to that over and over and over and over and over, pretty soon it becomes so commonplace, guess what? You just accept it. You just shrug your shoulders and go, yeah, well, that's the way it is today. And we just kind of shrug it off. 
Um, Alexander Pope wrote a uh, series of essays, but one of them was the essay on man. And out of that, he said this. He says, vice is a monster of so frightful mean, which means appearance, as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen so often, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. See, this is what is happening, unfortunately, in our society today, and more specifically, in the church in America. It's in grave danger of pitying or even embracing the sexual immorality around us, the uh, rampant abortion of unborn children. It's just engulfed our nation. And somehow we think, well, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not a big deal to God. Yes, it is. That's why we're dealing with what we're dealing with now. And we've all been living and swimming around in this filthy cesspool of sin. And the Apostle Paul commands here in our text in Ephesians, it, it becomes even more urgent. And I think you'll see this as, as we read through it. So I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word as I read Ephesians chapter 5. And I just want to read verses 3 to 6. Ephesians chapter 5, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, but sexual immorality, verse 3, and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Father, we ask you to bless this to our hearts now as we look at this text in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. See, this text is showing us clearly as God's saints, we have to, we're in a constant struggle. We're in a, we're, we have to be in a constant discipline of, of eliminating this kind of behavior, this kind of impurity from our thoughts, from our words, and from our deeds. Nobody here does this perfectly. Nobody has arrived and said, oh, I, I have no problem at all. I am perfect. I walk in sinless perfection every day. No, we all struggle in a myriads of way, whether it's our temper, whether it's the words we use, whether it's our irritation, whatever it might be, it causes us to sin at times. And the reasons that he gives for these commands that we just read are not, he doesn't say, oh, you know, I want you to be this way so you can have a happy marriage. That's not his point. He doesn't say that there, does he? Although having pure thoughts and words and deeds does improve your marriage, it improves your family life. Rather, he tells us that those who practice such things, the motivation is not that you'll just be happy in life, but you know what? Those who practice these things will not be in heaven, but he will come under God's wrath. Now, those are harsh words that the apostle is speaking. He's basically saying, if you do these things, you're going to go to hell on a continued basis. You will end up in hell one day. He doesn't, 
He doesn't, you know, candy coat it. He doesn't dumb it down. He says, you're going to come under God's wrath. See, and it's, it's to our eternal advantage, you might say, to understand and to apply what Paul is saying here to this church. To understand what he's saying. And basically, he's telling us the saints must not be immoral. The, the saints must not be greedy or impure, but rather they're called to be thankful because the immoral and the greedy will incur the wrath of God. Look at how he begins this text in verse 3. Notice, what's the first word there? But. But. It's, it's drawing a sharp contrast to the first two verses. Look at what he says in the first two verses of Ephesians 5. Therefore, based upon everything I taught you up to this point, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And what? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But, in other words, listen, in contrast to that, all these other sins that he lists here shouldn't even be named among you. They shouldn't even be hinted at. Really, in contrast to the the godly, unselfish, forgiving love of Christ that he points out in the first couple verses there, he's saying the world's love is, is the opposite. It's a, it's a self-love. It's, it's self-indulgent. It's, it's lustful. It's sinful. It loves because the object of love is attractive. It loves because it's enjoyable or pleasant or satisfying or appreciative. Or it loves because they know that they'll get love in return. It produces certain feelings that we enjoy having as people. In other words, the world loves because they're looking for a payment back. That's the kind of love that we see in the world. It's always based on the other person's fulfilling one's own needs and desires and meeting one's own expectations. Worldly love gives little in the expectation of getting much in return. And so speaking of that kind of love, even Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 46, he said, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? It's no big deal to love somebody that loves you. He's telling the religious leaders there, Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And the tax gatherers were the worst of all people. And what Jesus was pointing out is just because as Pharisees and Sadducees and you religious leaders say, oh, you know, we love love each other. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Try loving a tax gatherer. I mean, even the tax gatherers love other tax gatherers. You're not doing anything different than they are. He wants to make clear that the love of Christ, which he calls us to, stands in stark contrast to the lust and the love of the pagan world. This is the dynamic that Paul is pointing out. And and back then, the Greco-Roman world of that day, including the city of Ephesus, by the way, where there was a church, it was noted for its moral corruption. What we see going on today is nothing new. 
This has been around for thousands of years. Back then they had the temple of Artemis. They offered ritual prostitution as part of their worship. Sexual promiscuity was commonplace in that culture. Even the the Nero, the the leader, the, the political statesman, Emperor Nero, was openly homosexual. And he was known even to, history tells us, to have sexual involvement with his own mother, incestual relations. And so it was imperative for the church to look different, to be different from this immoral culture that was facing God's judgment back then. And so I just want to be perfectly clear. I'm not saying by any means that all you have to do to get to heaven is be a moral person. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. You can try that all day long. And guess what? You're not going to make it. None of us have been perfectly moral. Nobody, including the Pope. Because Jesus raised the standard. And he raised it from just physical compliance to what? To mental compliance. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 27, verse 28. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he says, you know what? Look, you Pharisees and you religious leaders, just because you're not physically sleeping with your neighbor's wife, you're gazing at her every day with lust in your heart. That's just as bad. But even if you can claim that you've always been faithful to your spouse... Or if you're single here today that you've been chased as a single person, you're a virgin. That still doesn't qualify you for heaven. Because Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us that for by grace you have been saved, right? Through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's what? A gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You're never going to get to heaven on something that you have done doesn't work that way so it's important when it comes to the church because the task of the church is not to have some big moral crusade to change our culture from immoral to morality we already tried that it doesn't work the moral majority you remember that and all that stuff i mean it was a valid effort i guess valiant effort but we're definitely no moral today than we were back then See, the task of the church is not to crusade to make our culture moral or more moral, but rather to get people saved, to see people come to Christ. Because we understand that the only way that someone can be saved is if God transforms their heart, because that's where the issue lies. Our hearts, God transforming our hearts is the basis for pleasing him by a holy life. And so here in our text, Paul makes kind of three, three points. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the first point, but then we'll hurry through the last two. First of all, he says here, the saints must not be immoral or greedy. He says that in verses 3 and 4, but sexual immorality and all impurity of covetousness or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. 
I want to start with the last word there first in verse 3, saints. This is Paul's common word for believers. It means holy ones. It means those who have been set apart, those who are called out, hagios in the, in the original language. The Bible never uses this word to refer to a special class of believers or a special class of Christians who reached a certain spiritual time in their life and now they're, quote, a saint. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and we had saints coming out our ears. You're always kissing the toe of some saint or something. It was ridiculous. They're humans just like us. They're sinners just like us. But here he's referring to Christians. He's re- a saint refers to anybody who's been changed, who's been transformed by God's glorious power and has been set apart by God. It refers to the fact that the believer, <clears throat> as a believer, you are Uh, We use the word sanctified, or you are set apart as holy unto the Lord. And so now as a result, Paul is saying he's calling you a saint. So now what does he do? He expects you to live as a saint. You live as someone that lives solely for the Lord. A couple things here. God's standard for moral purity is absolute. It's not relative, as our society would have us believe. And it's therefore not debatable. We can't debate God's moral standard. That's not our place. And that's why sometimes when you get into issues of abortion and things, and people will say, well, what if this happens? Well, what if this? What if that? Well, okay. I mean, we're, we're at a point now where, oh, you know what? Uh, I'm having a, a, a baby girl. I don't want a baby girl. I want a baby boy. Let's just kill it. Up, up. Virtually until the child is born, you can kill these children. God said to kill any life, human life, is wrong. He doesn't say, well, it's okay if it doesn't have a name yet or if, you know, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say it's okay if, you know, just because the person's 99 years old and doesn't know where they're at or who they are. Yeah, you can just give them an injection and kill them. God doesn't say that. Now that's convenient. Just like abortion is convenient. But it's wrong. According to God's word. It's not debatable. And there'll be consequences for those who deal with this. Now, the wonderful thing is, is that, you know what? If you've gone through a time like that in your life, what does God do? God gives you grace. We're not here to condemn this kind of behavior from someone's past. You don't do that. Why? Because if if they've come to Christ, if Christ has forgiven them, he's forgiven them for all their sin. And sometimes we like to point out certain sins because they're, you know, more attractive than others, I guess, or something. I don't know. But you know what? Whether we have anger in our heart or whether we have impure thoughts or whether we've acted upon those thoughts. It's all sin. And it's all condemned by God. But the good news is it's all able to be forgiven. It doesn't matter how horrendous your past has been. It doesn't matter how many people you've killed. It's irrelevant when it comes to God's forgiveness. And so we live in a day when even most professing Christians deny 
that God's moral standards are absolutely true and binding on all peoples in all cultures. I've heard Christians say, well, in that society, you know, it's kind of different. It doesn't matter when it comes to certain standards that God has set forth. As far back as 1991, that's a while ago, right? And I'm sure it's worse now. But there was a poll taken, and it said only 23% of born-again or evangelical Christians expressed a strong belief in absolute truth. See, we live in a society today when you talk about absolute truth, people just cringe. They, how dare you? There's nothing that's absolute in our society. I mean, we live in a society where if I wake up and I, you know what, I, I, I think I just want to be a girl today. Okay, I'm going to think of myself as a girl. It, it makes no sense. Because physically you're not a, a girl, you're a, a boy. <laughs> you're a male. And God created you that way. But we've dumbed things down to the point where there's nothing absolute anymore. And so when it comes to things like homosexuality or abortion or anything, you know, we feel somehow that that's acceptable in our society today. God's standards for moral purity are not up for a popular vote. It doesn't matter whether you agree with God's standard or not. Do you understand that? It it makes no difference whatsoever. And you find this out when you share the gospel with people and they say, well, my God's not that way. My... And I stop and I go, I don't care. I don't care about your God. There's only one God, the God in heaven. And that's hard for people to understand in our morally relevant world today. It's hard for people to understand that marriage isn't just a convenient relationship where you can have Sexual relations, it's actually something that's ordained by God. It's a lifelong commitment. And you know what? When you practice within the boundaries of marriage what God has laid it out to be, it's a wonderful blessing and gift. But when we violate these standards, in short, sure, there's, you know, you, you can't say there's not pleasure in sin. Anybody that says that is a liar. Sin, frankly, is fun. Satan's made it that way. It's pleasurable. That's why it's tempting. Right? I mean, it's it's not like Satan's out there trying to get you to drink a a shot of apple cider vinegar or something. No, he's he's got the, the apple cider vinegar coated with sugar, and it looks so good. So in the short term... When we violate God's standards, it's for our own short-term pleasure. But it brings long-term pain and problems. And keeping God's commandments is, is often difficult in the short term. It's difficult to do what God has called us to do. And there's a reason why that. He doesn't want us to just be able to do it on our own. That's why he's left us the Holy Spirit. That's why he's given us the church. That's why he's given us his word. To encourage our spiritual growth. But if we do keep God's commandments, they're deeply fulfilling 
in the long term. So God's standards are absolute. Secondly, God's standards include moral purity in thought, speech, and behavior. Thought, speech, and behavior. Jesus said that immoral behavior comes out of the heart in Mark 7. And so we have to deal with immoral behavior at the heart level. You can't just get immoral people to comply. Well, I'm a Christian. I don't believe you should do this. Well, that's fine. But that's not going to change how they view it. See, so many times we're quick to push our Christian standard on unbelievers. I don't, personally, I don't think we should do that. It's giving them a false message. It's giving them a message of somehow if I just change this behavior on my own, then, then I'll be accepted by God and by you. There's a lot of Christian parents that just pray for their kids to go to church. Oh, I just wish my kids would go to church. I wish my kids would go to church. And I always have to say, that that's not going to fix it. Going to church does not fix it. Sometimes it's, it, it messes them up. Because <laughs> the church isn't perfect. What you should be praying for your children who are not walking with the Lord is that God gets a hold of their heart, that he saves them. Then guess what? They'll want to go to church. So Jesus says this is a heart issue. And he uses six terms here that refer to sins that the saints must not practice. And the first one is immorality. Pornia in the Greek, and it refers to any kind of sexual immorality. It's the opposite of another word which refers to self-control. It's the complete opposite. It includes anything outside of the bounds of marriage, basically, sexually. And then he uses the word impurity. The root meaning here is unclean or dirty or impure. This is kind of disgusting, but it refers to the the pus around an open infected wound. That's what it refers to. In the moral realm, it refers to that which contaminates others and it's repulsive, it's disgusting. Jesus used this same word in Matthew twenty three twenty seven when he was talking about the rotting, decaying bodies in a tomb. The other ten times the word is used in the New Testament, it's associated with sexual sin. It refers to immoral thoughts, passions, ideas, fantasies, whatever you want to put under the form of moral corruption. Paul used it in, uh, I think it's Ephesians 4.19, to refer to the ungodly behavior of the Gentiles who had given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then he lists covetousness. And he associates it with idolatry. We see that in Colossians 3.5 too. And it has the idea of, of greed The greedy man has lust for more, more of everything, whether it's money, material possessions. And greed is motivated by what? It's it's motivated by 
selfish pleasure apart from God. That's what greed basically is motivated by. It's idolatry because it seeks to find pleasure in something other than God. As believers, our, our, our whole desire, our whole mindset should be we want to find pleasure in our relationship with our Lord and Savior at all costs. Well, that's not so in this case. Idolatry seeks to find pleasure in something other than God while rejecting God's commands. They say, I don't want to hear God. That's basically what Paul said in Romans. They suppress the truth. So Paul says these three sins here that we've gone over are not even to be named among you, he says, which is proper among the saints. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean that you shouldn't be discussing these things because he's discussing them. Some people say, well, maybe we shouldn't even talk about this stuff. No, Paul's talking about this stuff. He's He's not talking about that. He obviously doesn't mean that they shouldn't be discussed because the Bible also, in other places, gives stories of sexual immorality that we read about. Sometime in descriptive detail. Proverbs 7, I think, does that. But what does he mean here? He means that these sins shouldn't even be named. They, shouldn't, they should be unknown among Christians. This is behavior that's outside the realm of Christianity, biblically. We shouldn't be feeding our minds on these sins. How do we do that? We watch things, we watch movies, we watch TV programs that depict things of immoral nature. We read juicy accounts of those who've fallen into immorality in the press. Paul said in Romans chapter 16, verse 19, he says, but I want you to be wise in what is good. And then he says this, and innocent in what is evil. I think a lot of people in our churches today have missed that. Because we think, well, it's not that big of a deal. We can't. What are we supposed to do? Just cut off the whole world and not have any dealings with anybody? No, but practically, just ask yourself. I've asked myself this week. What ratio do I watch shows that I like to watch on TV, whether it's cops or whatever, Gunsmoke, The Lone Ranger? I mean, how you go on and on, right? I mean, what's the percentage of time I sit there and watch TV versus praying or studying God's word? Or today we can listen to God's word. You know, some people say, well, I don't watch TV. Well, that's fine. What do you listen to? Are you, are you always listening to something that's edifying your soul? Now, I'm not prudish about this. I like secular music. I like some music that, hey, just as a musician, I enjoy listening to it. Nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, you know, providing the the lyrics are at least somewhat honoring to the Lord. But when you step back away from it, what 
How much time am I spending feeding my soul on praise and worship or, or listening to God's word on an audio uh, app on your phone? Because we think somehow this doesn't affect us when we put this stuff in our minds. But it does. Just like our senses, get, they change. Well, our, our spiritual senses, they dull down. And you're starting off, oh, you just listen to this, this then you listen to this, and then pretty soon... Wow, you're, you're into some music that's just completely off base, and you don't even realize it. So you have to be careful. And then he moves on to filthiness. This refers to indecency, obscenity. Uh, it's a shameful thing. Um, it's the same Greek, uh, Greek root word that comes from disgraceful. These are things Paul said shouldn't even be mentioned among you. And then he says, foolish talk comes from two words, meaning silly speech. We get our word moron from the root word here. And and just to be clear, someone who's a moron or a fool in the Bible is not someone who is mentally deficient. That's how we use the word. That that person's really stupid. I remember... When the kids were little, I'd, I'd say, well, that was stupid, what did you do that? And they'd run back and tell Crystal, Grandpa said the S word. And I'm thinking, they mean the S word, right? But they didn't, they meant stupid. So I had to learn from that. But all I'm saying is that biblically, it's not talking about somebody who's, in our phrase, stupid or mentally deficient. It's talking about somebody who is morally deficient, biblically. A fool is someone who doesn't honor God's morals. Why? Because they ignore God's word. That's the fool. What's the the Bible say? The fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. That's foolish. That's foolishness. That's foolish talk. And then he says crude joking, a word that literally means to turn easily. It has the idea of someone who can make a quick comeback. Comedians do this all the time, right? They can turn something that's very innocent into something dirty and filthy. Just by implication, by the way they say something or whatever. I mean, it's a real skill they've, they've, they've crafted. But as Christians, we shouldn't joke about these kind of things. For the same reason we wouldn't joke about God. It's a sacred subject. Marriage is a sacred subject. Sexual relations is a sacred subject when it comes to God. The marriage relationship should be revered among God's people, not degraded or made light of. So, therefore, God's standard is absolute, and it includes moral purity in thought, speech, and behavior. But thirdly, God's standard must be your standard as a saint. It must be your standard as a saint. You don't have any option. Sexual purity is not an infrequent theme throughout the writings of Paul. He mentions purity, or he warns about immorality, multiple times in these letters that he writes to Christian people in churches. Just to give you an example, I'll list off what I found. In Romans 1, he talks about either uh, purity or immorality. In Romans 13, in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, 7, and 10. In 2 Corinthians 6, 7, and 12. In Galatians 5, in Ephesians 4 and 5. Colossians 3, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Timothy 1, 3, 4, and 5, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and Titus 1, 2, and 3. So Paul wasn't like just bringing up a subject he's never talked about before. And why did he bring it up so much? Because it was an issue. It was an issue even among the church. Because all these letters, the ones that I just listed, were all addressed to those who are professing Christians in the church. So what Paul is saying is God intends that you as a Christian be reminded of and be on guard against any kind of sexual temptation or immorality or anything like that that tempts all of us. And to be morally pure in God's eyes, you have to commit yourself to God's standard. You can't take God's standard and say, well, I can't achieve that, so I'm going to move it down here. No. You have to take God's standard where he puts it, and you have to fight to maintain it. To fight for purity, you have to guard your thought life first and foremost. You have to restrict certain kinds of media that you're exposed to. And we're all different. We all, we all react differently to things. Okay? For some people... You know, if they hear someone cuss, you know, they go crazy. You know, I mean, I don't appreciate it, but I don't go crazy. So I, I, I deal with a lot of police officers sometimes that they cuss all day long. Like, I have no ministry if that, if that upset me. You know, you have to bridge that, that thing. Now, it doesn't please me. But... You know, so you know, we all react differently. We all have kind of a different standard when it comes to media and all those things. But in the end, you have to stop and say, is this affecting my spiritual growth? Because if it is, you have to put a guard against it. You have to be accountable if you're using a computer nowadays or a phone or an iPad or whatever it is. You have to make a covenant as Job did with the Lord. Make a covenant with him. Hey, help me not to look on anything that's of this nature that's dishonoring to you. Because it's a battle. I mean, if you don't think this is a battle in everyone's life, you're you're sleeping. You're, You're not awake. I would say you're dead. It's a battle. You can't drive down the freeway without being bombarded by a billboard or something that's that draws your attention down that immoral road. And it's not going to happen automatically to win the battle. You have to actively fight against it. And and this is where I think the church has given it up. I mean, you know, think of this. This is what Jesus said about sin. The seriousness of sin is this. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he says, Have you... You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, we already read this to you, that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says this, which is such a radical statement to say. Verse 29, he says, you know what? If your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. What? What? If your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, is Jesus telling us to, you know, and he goes on and he says, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. I mean, I think most of us as believers would understand that thinking. I mean, I would rather go to heaven with no limbs than to hell with all limbs. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is just a tent we live in, right? And so he's not saying literally go cut your arm off if it's causing you to sin. But he's saying this is the, this is the divine standard. This is how seriously we should take sin. And I've dealt with men who have issues in the area of pornography and other areas. And I say, well, well it just happens when I'm on my computer. Well, then unplug the computer. Well, I can't do that. I mean, what do you, you expect me not to have internet? Yeah. If you can't control yourself, yes, that's what this is saying. Turn off the electricity to the house. Do whatever it takes. So you don't go down this road over and over and over and over again. And somehow we don't get it. I've talked to individuals who, you know, they say, well, when I go to this certain place to, to just buy a, a water after work, you know, I go up and pay for it and they got all, this is years ago, but they have all these magazines behind the counter. And it just tempts me. I said, well, why do you keep going there? I'll tell you why, because you enjoy it. You enjoy your sin, but you're unwilling to admit it. See, most of us are that way. Maybe that, not to that degree. But you know what? Most of us are that way. We like to shift blame. We, we like to say, well, the reason I did this, or the reason I got angry is because you did this. Or the reason I, that's wrong. We just have to admit it. God's willing to forgive. Just, just call it out and say, yeah, okay. Yeah, I got a little passion. I got a little heated here. I'm sorry. Let's move on. The last thing here under this point is we must model and teach God's standard to our children. This is so important for parents. I know so many parents that just assume, well, you know, the church, that's their job. That's the Christian camp job. They think somehow by sending their kids to church or VBS or whatever, that somehow that's going to work. Well, guess what? It's not the church's job. It's your job. They're your children. So you need to do what's right as parents and bring them up in the way of the Lord. Hopefully you have an open relationship with your kids where you can talk about these kind of things and temptations that they're facing. Not just condemn them when they do it. Be an example to your children. Mothers, teach your daughters what modesty means. Not in a legalistic fashion, but what does that mean? When he says women should dress modestly in 1 Timothy 2.9. Because as young women, if you're believers, you want to you do what's right before the Lord. You want to please the Lord in this way. And to women in general, I would just say, you know what? You're not helping us brothers in the Lord to walk in moral purity when you dress seductively. When you dress in ways that draw attention to your body and things like that, that's, that's not helpful for us. That's not being a prudish person. I'm just being honest with you. Now, I'm not saying you have to wear a burlap sack on your body, you know. I mean, I, I believe in fashion and, hey, you should look nice and all that stuff, I, you know. But at the same time, you know, some of the things that people wear today, 
are, are very dangerous. And I think we've grown dull to it, frankly. We don't even recognize it anymore. Scripture is very clear that we're not to set a stumbling block before another brother or a sister in the Lord. We're not to do that. We have to learn to ignore the world's sensuous fashions, and we need to dress in a manner that pleases the Lord. So the first point here was Christians must not be immoral or greedy. Secondly, the alternative to immorality and greed is to give thanks. That seems kind of odd. When I read that, I thought, what? You would think that Paul would say, well, you're supposed to replace sexual impurity with purity, right? I mean, I would think that. And that is, of course, the fact. He gets to that in verses 9 to 11. But here he says, the alternative to sexual immorality and greed is to give thanks. And I find myself asking myself, why does he say this? Think about it. What does thankfulness have to do with moral impurity? But when you honestly look at it, it has a lot to do with it. An awful lot. Because when you are thankful as a believer, what are you doing? If you have an attitude of thankfulness, you're, you're calling yourself into submission to God's sovereign sovereignty over your life. You're saying, Lord, you know what? I am thankful for this situation because I know that you're the sovereign God who put me in this situation. And God created you. He knows what's best for you. He knows every detail of your life. So it doesn't do any good as a believer to start grumbling and complaining, thinking somehow you know what's best for you, and God doesn't. Because either God is sovereign over your life or he's not. Would you agree? You can't have it half and half. But if you're just always complaining about your circumstances, you're not really complaining about your circumstances. What are you complaining about? You're really complaining about God's goodness and wisdom in reference to the aspects of your life that you're complaining about. You're saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, if you're grumbling, if you're a single person here today and you're, you're grumbling and whining about being single, stop it. It's not right. God has you single for a purpose at this point in your life. Utilize your time to serve him. Now, with that being said, I mean... You know what? If you feel called to be married, then you need to be praying for that spouse. Praying for that mate that God has for you. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having the desire to be married. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying be complacent. But what I'm saying is don't be whining and complaining at this point in your life if you are single. In the same way for married people. There's a lot of married people. I guess I married the wrong person. What in the world does that mean? Who's the right person? I don't know, but I'm going to get rid of this one and go find him. And that's how we treat marriage today, even within the church, unfortunately. We need to roll our sleeves up and say, you know what? No, I married this person. I gave my vow to death do his part. And I'm going to see it through. Come hell or high water, I'm going to stay married to this person. Because I committed. My word means something. 
And I'm going to work and do everything I can to make this relationship better if it's not good. I'm not just going to wimp out and run away. The same aspect goes for the area of financial areas. I mean, think about it. Satan tempted Eve by getting her to doubt God's goodness, did he not? What's God withholding from you, Eve? I think he's withholding something you want, something that would be more beneficial for you. There's a, there's a motive here that God is keeping this from you. And when she bit into Satan's lure that the fruit would really be good for her, contrary to what God said, what did she do? She yielded to sin. She yielded to sin. You know what? And Satan uses the same ploy in our lives to tempt us to fulfill our own desires in direct disobedience to God. That's why counsel and godly counsel is so important. Whether it's finance, whether it's relationships. I mean, it breaks my heart when someone comes for counsel and you give them the counsel and they don't like what you give them and they go do whatever they want to do anyway. It usually doesn't end well. And every time you see it, it's like, oh, you know, I wish I would have pushed harder. I wish I would to prevent that. Because you see the heartache that you're dealing with. Now, God is gracious, right? God's gracious. I mean, he, he gives him the grace to deal with it. And sometimes even blessings come out of things like that. But Satan will use that ploy every time to kind of say, eh, you know what, God doesn't really know what he's talking about. You, you do what you want to do. We read last week Romans 1, and at the root of it was verse 21. If you remember what it says, it says, they did not honor him, speaking as God, or, what does it say? Or give thanks. Isn't that weird? You read through Romans 1, it says, well, you know what? Here's, here's what happens. They did not honor him as God or give him thanks. So by faith, we have to bow before God's sovereignty over our circumstances, whether we like them or not, and give him thanks. Ken mentioned that Crystal and the girls are moving to Idaho. You know, they've been living with this for several months. And at first I thought, how are we going to do this? Small little house, seven people or six people, whatever it was, five people. And it was just, you know, but you know what? Um, It's going to be hard when they're not there. It's going to be very hard. And it's, it's, it's a, one of those situations where you look at it and you go, wow, God, I wish it could be different. I wish they could stay here. Or I wish we could move there. But that's not God's plan right now. So I can whine and I can complain or I can do whatever I want. But you know what? I step back and I go, God, you're sovereign over this. You have a purpose in taking this family to Idaho. And I'm awaiting to hear the many blessings that you're going to fulfill through them as they minister to others and get involved in a church up there and all that. You know what? But for this time, that's what it is. Because God designed it that way. 
I can't shake my fist in God and say, well, how dare you? I can say thanks for four or five months. Most time I've ever spent with him, pretty much. See, we have to develop that thankful heart for all of God's blessings, including everything that we had talked about. Well, the third thing here, the immoral and greedy will not be in King God's kingdom, but will incur his wrath. And this is the last point. He makes two points here. You shall know for certain that no immoral or greedy person will have an inheritance in God's kingdom. He says this very clearly. It only makes sense. It's going to be heaven. There will be no sin there. Now, you say, well, don't genuine Christians fall into these sins? Yes, we do. We all do. We've all sinned in a myriad of ways, and we continue to do so. But what he's saying here is no genuine Christian, no one who has sincerely and, and, and uh, for sure been born again and transformed by God's power can continue to live in such a way. You can't embrace sin continually as a lifestyle, saying, I know God says I should be doing this, but I don't care, I'm going to do this. John says in 1 John 3, 7 and 8, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin... In other words, you live in sin continuously. You don't fall into it occasionally, but you live in it is of the devil, he says. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So basically, people who are living in sin, whether it's the sin of homosexuality or whatever it might be, and yet claiming to be a Christian, knowing that God's word denounces that behavior, is an impossibility. Because the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to what? Destroy the works of the devil, not to see them fulfilled in your life. And then secondly, don't let anyone deceive you about these things because the end result is God's wrath. Paul knew that many, even in Paul's time, including many Christian leaders, would say, you know what? Relax, Paul. We're under grace God is a God of love. He's not going to condemn you. He understands your weakness. See, such enticing words the church has embraced today, unfortunately. And they lure unsuspecting people into eternal ruin, 2 Peter 2, 13 to 22 says. The phrase there, the sons of disobedience, refers to those whose lives are characterized by disobedience. It's not just a one-off, you know. I mean, we all sin, like I said, occasionally. But you know what? This is somebody who is seeped in sin. They enjoy it. They live for it. It's not referring to those who have fallen and repented of their sin. If someone professes to be a Christian, but they live in habitual disobedience to God's moral standards, it's evidence, as we just read, that they're not born again. They're not a Christian, as much as we'd like to believe they are. And unless they truly repent, the Bible says that they will face God's eternal wrath and judgment. 
And don't be deceived by anyone who says anything else. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, we'll close with this. Verses 19 to 21 Galatians five nineteen to 21, he says, Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They're very plain. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, origins, and things like these. And then he says this, I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things, Things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the same implication is there. It's not this is a one-off. Oh, I had a impure thoughts, and therefore I'm not going to heaven. No. He's saying you live in this as a lifestyle. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit as a daily thing. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Very clear. The church is called to be different from this world in which we live. We're not called to embrace their moral standard. We're to lift up and exalt God's moral standard. We're not going to do that perfectly. Nobody does. But by God's help, we should do it in a more effective way. I mean, praise God, there's hope for every sinner at the cross. It's never too late. Don't let your moral senses be dulled down by the society in which you live, especially out here in the California West Coast. Don't find yourself going along with the the cultural drift into this increasingly immoral and greedy culture in which we live. We need to let our senses be trained by God's word. That's why it's so important to stay in the word of God because that's where he shows us his paths of righteousness. And those paths of righteousness that he shows us are for our eternal joy and good. And I would just say, if you're here this morning and you've yet to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would do just that, that you would turn to Christ and you would say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness for my sins. And I want to put my faith, my trust in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm asking him to transform my life. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you called us out of darkness into light, and you've given us very plainly the standard by which we should live. You you don't move the goalposts as we see so often today. But, Lord, your word is, is sure. It's a foundation upon which we can build our lives to be a church that honors you. First, as individual in the way we live each and every day, may our lives be honoring to you. And Father, when we do fail you, when we do fall, when we do sin, Lord, let us come to you quickly. We know in your word it says that we confess our sins. Since we confess our sins, you are faithful and you're just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means we are holy in your sight. What a glorious thing that is. 
And I pray if anyone here has yet to cry out to you that today would be the day. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I want to put my faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Stop playing this moral shell game that we see going on all around us. So much easier to have a clear standard to shoot for. Something that's plainly stated. And it's not changeable in any way. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its absolute truth that it speaks into our lives. And we pray today that you would just bless us as we all go our ways. Pray that you'd bless our family as we travel up to Idaho. Bless our trip. Keep us alert and just let us have an uneventful trip. And and as I come back on Friday, pray you'd bless that trip as well. We thank you and pray you'd bless our time across the way. Bless the food to our bodies. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.